this. If you would, if you have your Bibles, you have scriptures, please follow along as we read, as we study from God's Word together. If I had to put a title on the lesson, I guess it would be The Things in Which God Delights. And we'll, we'll hopefully see where, you'll see where we're getting that as we proceed through the lesson. I've been impressed with this passage. God comes to Solomon and asks him, says, you know, what do you want me to give you? Open offer. You know, ask anything that you want. And I'm impressed at this point in Solomon's life with his response, with his attitude towards God. In verse 7, the end of that verse, he says, But I am a little child, and I do not know how to go out or to come in. He's admitting to God that he, he doesn't know what he needs to do, and he needs guidance. He's asking for guidance. He recognizes his smallness in the presence of God. He realizes, recognizes who God is and how great God is. And then in verse 8, he says, And your servant. He acknowledges that he is God's servant. He says, in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen. So again, emphasizing he understands his relationship to God and his relationship to the people. And I'm also impressed with God's response in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, it says, Then God said to him, Because you have not asked, or you have asked this thing, and have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor riches for yourself, nor for the life of your enemies. You haven't asked for anything selfish. You're not thinking about yourself. And God is pleased with that. And so in verse 12, he promises to give Solomon a wise and understanding heart. He promises to give Solomon an answer to Solomon saying, I don't know how to go out or come in. He's saying, I'll give you the answer. Now, I guess if we break out our thesaurus and think, you know, all right, what's Solomon asking for and what's God giving him? Um, most of us would, looking at this passage, would say he's asking for wisdom. And he is, and God's giving him wisdom. And when we think of wisdom, we naturally go to what book? Proverbs. In Proverbs, know in chapter 1, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, it expands upon that a little bit. Says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see that demonstrated in Solomon's prayer. We see that he recognizes who God is. But then the, the verse also says, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We not only have to fear God, we have to know God. You ask a lot of people if they know God, and they say, oh yeah, you know, 
I believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Well, what do you know about God? Do you know his true character? And I think that's what it's getting more into with when it says here, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In the book of, of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Jeremiah Penn says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his mind, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. Again, if we compare this somewhat to Solomon's prayer, verse 23 is saying, don't be selfish in your thoughts. You know, don't think about your wisdom, your might, and your riches. Glory, then in verse 24, in God. Glory in understanding and knowing God himself, that he is the Lord. And then he said, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. As we look at other passages today, I want to pay close attention to, to this. I appreciate uh, the translation that John was reading from. In the, the passage from 1 Kings, it translated loving kindness. New King James said mercy. Those two are frequently used interchangeably. So even here, if we look at loving kindness, we should also think of mercy. In judgment, some of the passages that we'll be looking at, instead of judgment, say justice. A God is fair. He is just in his judgments. And then righteousness in the earth. God is exercising and carrying out his righteousness in the earth. And he says, for in these I delight. These, these are the things that please God. But where do we see God exercising loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth? How do we come to understand and know these things about him? One of the passages that I would like for us to look at is in Hosea chapter 2. Now, in the context in Hosea, Hosea is a prophet bringing some of God's judgment against his people Israel. Israel and Judah both, if you look at Hosea 1.1, 1, 1, um, during the time frame in which Hosea prophesied. Uh, both kingdoms at this time, the kingdom was divided by this time. Both king, kingdoms ultimately were taken away in captivity because of their infidelity to God. But at this time in, in history, God is using Hosea and his wife Gomer to represent the relationship between God and his people at this time. Hosea, God tells Hosea to go take a wife of harlotry. Go marry an adulterer. Go marry a prostitute, if you want to say. He describes that relationship in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he continues to use this relationship, but again, he's using it to demonstrate Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But what I want to focus on is the latter part of chapter 2. 
is God is still showing his actions and Hosea's, if you will, in this relationship. Beginning in verse 14 uh, down through verse 20, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She, sh she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take away from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter, shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I pay close attention to verse 19 and 20. And again, this is the Lord saying this to Israel, if you will. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Everything that he says in verse 19 is what Jeremiah said in chapter 9, verse 24 about knowing God and God exercising these things on the earth. In verse 20, the end of that verse, he says, you shall know the Lord. And that is knowing the Lord and understanding the Lord is a part of that wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So he's saying, I'm going to do these things for you. Despite the fact that you have gone after these idols, despite the fact that you live a spiritually adulterous life, that you haven't been faithful to me, I'm still reaching out to you and doing this for you. We see a similar thing in the New Testament. If you will, let's turn over to Romans chapter 3. Again, in Hosea's day, both Israel and Judah had both been unfaithful to God. In the New Testament, Paul pins for us here in Romans, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable, and there is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the, the world may become guilty, that all the world may become guilty before God. Paul's saying, everybody's in this situation. We all are. 
Everybody that's ever lived and lives today is still in this same situation, that all the world may become guilty before God. So all of us, if you will, could put ourselves in Gomer's place. But Paul doesn't end there. He continues in verse 20 through 26. He says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation <coughs> by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, in this, in this passage from 20 through 26, what do we see the emphasis on? First, God's righteousness. In verse 21 and 22, both say the righteousness of God. Verse 25 says his righteousness. Verse 26 says his righteousness. And then goes on and says that he is both just and the justifier. Now again, if we, if we think back to the passage in uh, Jeremiah 9, it talks about God's righteousness, his justice, and his loving kindness, or his mercy. And isn't that only demonstrated by the word here used that he is our justifier. It's only through his mercy and his loving kindness that he can justify us. And it's his justice by allowing Jesus to die in our place. So we see all three demonstrated in this passage as well. Just as, as Jeremiah recorded in uh, chapter 9. <laughs> I want to take a, a brief aside or a detour. Jeremiah 9, 23, or 24 particularly, talked about these things. Uh, God's righteousness, his justice, and his loving kindness. And it said there that those were the things in which he delighted. I want to look at the opposite of that. Primarily, again, another passage in the Old Testament where God is bringing judgment on his people, if you turn over to the book of Isaiah, in chapter 65, in chapter 65, verses 11 and 12, it says, But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare the, a table for, for Gad, who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called you did not answer when I spoke you did not hear but did evil before my eyes and chose that 
in which I do not delight. So God's condemnation here is because they were doing things that he didn't delight in. They were doing the opposite. They were things that were unrighteous and unjust and unmerciful. Also in Isaiah in chapter 66 verses 3 and 4 it says there he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Again, just next chapter over, same statement. They, they chose and they did the things in which God did not delight. Uh, we see a similar thing in the New Testament. In Matthew, when Jesus is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23, as we read this first passage here in, in chapter 23, think about what we read from uh, Jeremiah 9, uh, 23 and 24, and also think about Solomon's prayer and why God approved it and why God gave him wisdom. Um, in chapter Matthew 23, beginning in the first verse down through about verse 12, says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe, and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their gar garments. They love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you will be your shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That part is the total opposite of Solomon's prayer. Solomon's prayer was unselfish. Solomon recognized his position before God. He wasn't doing things to be seen by other people, and he wasn't looking to exalt himself. And the same thing is, is what Jeremiah recorded in Jeremiah 9, 23. You know, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, or the mighty man glory in his might, or the rich man in his riches. So the scribes and the Pharisees were doing the things in which God did not delight. Now, according to what Jesus said earlier, they were teaching the right things. Because he tells them, you know, what they tell you, do it, observe it. But he said, don't do the way they do. So they were keeping the commandments, but they were not doing it 
the way God would have done it. They weren't doing it in a way that incorporated the things in which God delights. And he, within this passage in chapter 23, another passage or verse that you may be more familiar with, in verse 23 he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of the mint and the anise and the cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he's telling them, you, you kept the commandments, you kept the detail of the law, but you did not do it with God's righteousness and with God's mercy and with God's justice. You were doing it in the wrong way. And this isn't the only place in the, the New Testament that we see this. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the church in Corinth had more than their share of issues. In chapter 1, the first 10 verses or so, he's, he's trying to get them focused back on Christ. But in, in 26 through 31, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. First of all, in, in this passage in verse 26, he says, you see that not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And in that same thing, Jeremiah told him in chapter 9, verse 23, don't glory in your own wisdom, in your own might, and in your own riches. And then verse 24, he says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9, 24, which is quoted here in verse 31. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We're told in, in other passages in the Old Testament, particularly, I think some of us may be familiar with Jeremiah 10, 23. Where it says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. But one thing you'll want to pay particular attention to in this, man's ability to direct himself, it doesn't come from him. If we trust ourselves, we're going to go wrong. And again, think about this. Compare it to what Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 3 and verse 7. I'm a child and I don't know how to go out or to come in. Jeremiah is saying the same thing. We all need to realize that we need help with what we do and how we serve God. Another passage that we frequently go to that makes a similar statement in uh, the Old Testament in Isaiah 55 is verse 55 and verse 8 where God talking to them says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. In trying to, to 
put things together for this lesson. I, I got reading this section, and not just 55, but if you look at the context that it's in, and go back to 53, 54, 55, and read all of those things, it's amazing what all God has put in there through Isaiah. And I may touch on some more of them in a little bit. But one of the things he says, a lot of times we go to verse 8, and verse 8, if we think about it in the context of, of Jeremiah 10.23, is correct. God is speaking to those who are trying to direct their own steps. And for them, yes, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. The two aren't the same. But if we back up to verse 6 and 7, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He's saying, yeah, your thinking's not right now. It doesn't have to be that way. Seek God now while you've got time. Seek God. I may, may jump back to this passage. But for now, let's get, jump over to Proverbs chapter 2, if you will. And again, think about all the things that, that we've been reading from Solomon's prayer, from uh, what Jeremiah records in chapter 9, 23, and 24, and the other passages that we, we kind of connected all those things together. In Proverbs 2, 1 through 9, it says, My son, if you receive my words, and you treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment, and if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. If we kind of break this section down, first of all, in verse 1, he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 119, verse 11? Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So he's, he's saying in these first four verses, Receive my words, treasure my commands, incline your ear to wisdom, Apply your heart to understanding. Cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. Seek for her as silver. Search for her as for hidden treasure. Any gray in that memo? We have to pursue God's word and seek for it like nothing else in this world. Then in verse 5, 
He says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Which again, in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So he's saying, if you do all these things in verse 1 through 4, you'll have it. But he also promises in verses 6 through 8, if we do these things, we'll understand the fear of the Lord, we'll find the knowledge of God, and then, verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And he is a shield to those who walk uprightly. And he guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. If we do those things, this is what God will do. And then he says, verse 9, then you will understand righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. And isn't that the same thing Jeremiah said in 9.24? That those are the things that God does and that God delights in? Then you will understand those things. So those, those are promises that God has made, things that God has said. So now, like a little child, ask questions. Why? Why? Well, again, let's go back. Let's think about what was it Solomon prayed for. We go back to 1 Kings 3. Again, verses 7 and 8. He says, the end of seven, again, but I am a little child and I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Now granted, Solomon was king over God's people, the nation of Israel. We're not kings. But we still need God's wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves, if you will, how to go out, how to come in, how to interact with each other, how to interact with the people around us. No, we're not judges. But if we're going to do the things that God wants us to, if we're going to do the things that he delights in, in our relationships with each other and with those around us, we have to seek his wisdom and his knowledge. Again, that we won't read, I'm not going to take you back to Isaiah and read 53, 54, 55. I would love to, but we won't for sake of time. But again, we were looking in, in chapter 55 of Isaiah, you know, the passages where God's asking them to seek him and that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways says the Lord. But if we go back to 53, 53 is the suffering servant passage as it's referred to that talks about Christ's crucifixion. And following 53, he goes into 54 and he begins, again, because he's rebuked Israel for their disobedience, but he's promising them through things like chapter 53, I'm still reaching out to you. I'm still appealing to you to come to me, to seek me, as he, as he mentions in 55. And then he makes promises that he will 
restore their relationship, that he will lift them up. Um, he talks about in chapter 54 and verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And he goes on with all these promises. But the end of, of 54, the end of uh, verse 17, says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which arises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. We have to realize if there is any righteousness in us at all, it comes from God, not us. Not us keeping his commandments like the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked, but it comes from God. And it comes from keeping his commandments in a way that he delights in, in a way that reveals his character to people. Also within the context of 53, 54, and 55, after he rebukes them in, in 55 verses 8 and 9 and talking about the heavens are as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your ways then he goes on and he's talking about God's word because he says for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth a bud that it may give, give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In that context of talking about his word going forth like the rain and the snow, he says, and make it bring forth a bud that it may give seed to the sower. Question. Is it a coincidence then that Jesus, in describing the interpretation of the parable of the sower, says the seed is the word of God. That God's whole purpose for these things are so that we can do the things in which he delights so that we can be sowers of the seed. So that we can do the things in which he delights. So that we as sowers of the seed can let the world know what God pinned through Hosea in chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 I will betroth you to me forever yes I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord because it's whether or not we carry out God's commandments in a way that shows his righteousness and his mercy and his justice. If you will, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father,
we come before your throne asking, as Solomon did, that you give us wisdom, that you help us to know how to go out and to come in, how to conduct ourselves in this world in the midst of a sinful and evil generation, but help us to realize that it's not because we're righteous, but because you have already shown your righteousness and your justice and your mercy to us. Help us not to become like the Jews of old, the nation of Israel, or the scribes and the Pharisees, or the brethren in Corinth. Help us to remember that it's your righteousness, not ours, that it's your mercy that we are trying to show forth, that we are trying to tell other people of your love and your care, that you are the only true and living God, that you sit on your throne in heaven, and that you are faithful. You are faithful if we will humble ourselves before you, if we will seek you above all else, that you will provide the wisdom that we need, and that you will keep us and protect us from the evil one. Help us, Lord, to look beyond this world. Help us to look to you, to heaven, and not become discouraged by the things that we see here, but that it would cause us to appreciate your greatness even more, to help us appreciate your love and your mercy even more. We pray that you would help us that we might always do the things in which you delight, and that we might imitate you in the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.